As you may be aware, our senior pastor, Ken McDonald, is uh, on a sabbatical for this month, returns uh, early February. But in his absence, we are continuing the series of messages from the Gospel of John. This started as a series in the fall and now continues as a series in the winter. We've called this series, Taking Jesus Seriously. Not that we suddenly in September decided that now is the time to take Jesus seriously. We always take Jesus seriously. But John's gospel is specifically a call to know and believe in the person of Jesus Christ so that in believing, we may have his life and power in our lives. Last week, we looked at the dramatic scene from John chapter 11 that unfolded when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. By doing so, He not only foreshadowed his own resurrection, but he demonstrated his power over the grave and over death itself. And as we move into John chapter 12 today, we encounter a turning point in Jesus' life and ministry. The first 11 chapters captured his public ministry, but now we will see him spend uh, the last few days before his crucifixion with his closest friends and disciples. (coughs) Excuse me. The first 11 chapters that we've already looked at in the Gospel of John cover essentially the three years of Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 12, where we find ourselves this morning, is the start of the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, already beginning in John chapter 12 and verse 12, we have John's record of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem an event that we remember on Palm Sunday. And since this is only the second Sunday of January, that just felt a little weird to me to be already thinking about Palm Sunday. So, for the next nine chapters, over the next nine weeks, we will continue to immerse ourselves into the most momentous week in the history of the world. The last week of Jesus' life a week spent in the company of his closest friends. And then chapter 21 is a record of some of the significant events that happened after Jesus rose from the dead. And you'd almost think that we planned it this way because the timing is almost perfect. Because as we're going to wrap up this series then towards the end of March, we will move right into the commemoration of Palm Sunday, the remembrance of Good Friday, and then the celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, April 5th, if you're taking notes. But back to today, we're going to discover a little bit about extravagant worship when Jesus was anointed at Bethany. This is clearly about an extravagant act of worship. We saw and heard in the video from the Gospel of John today that today's message finds us experiencing the event that took place where Lazarus actually lived. Yes, this is in fact the same Lazarus that, was ra- that Jesus raised from the dead that we looked at last week. But also at this dinner party were Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, and no doubt other guests as well. Maybe this was a, a dinner to, to celebrate the raising of Lazarus from the dead, a sort of kind of thank you dinner to, uh, to, to show, you know, sort of held in Jesus' honor to show him uh, um, uh, appreciation for giving life to to Lazarus. Whatever the occasion was, it was a a very brave thing to do. 
Because uh, earlier, an order had been given that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that they were to report it to the authorities. In fact, in the last verse, if you have your Bibles open, you can see some of these, these points that I'll make. In chapter 11, verse 57, we read, Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. You see... The raising of Lazarus was really a turning point in, in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because we're seeing two stories that are building and they're clearly on a collision course. Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. And the religious establishment is increasingly determined to stop him. The Lazarus miracle resulted in many people coming to faith in Jesus. And the growth of his popularity was obvious when he entered into Jerusalem and the crowds gathered to cheer him on. But this just served to increase the determination of the authorities to arrest Jesus and eliminate him as a threat and as a problem. In fact, not just Jesus was in danger, but Lazarus himself Verse 10 of chapter 12 says, When the leading priest decided, or sorry, then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. But it wasn't the presence of Lazarus back from the dead that people remembered about this dinner party. Nor was it the bravery of Jesus' friends gathering in spite of the increasing opposition around them. What stands out in these verses is Mary's extravagant act of worship. Verse 3, Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. This one scandalous act was so memorable that Mary, already in chapter 11 and verse 2, was known by it. It, it, in fact, was part of her reputation. Back in chapter 11, in identifying Mary and Martha as Lazarus' sister, John says of Mary, This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was like, oh, oh yeah, that Mary... Everyone knew of Mary by this one incredible and extravagant act of worship. This story is really one of devotion, and it's all about devotion. And in this case specifically, Mary's devotion scandalizes everyone in the room. Everyone, that is, except Jesus. And what's interesting to note is that this event took place Not in a formal setting like a a temple or a church, but in a place of fellowship. They were gathered in a home, having dinner. Martha served, Lazarus reclined. But the purpose made it a holy act of worship. The dinner, John says, was prepared in Jesus' honor. It was at the dinner table, not the temple that Mary performs her extravagant act of worship. And while we so often attribute, you know, worship to gathering in a place like this and singing songs about and to God, 
Worship is much more than simply singing some songs. And as we will see, extravagant worship is not just about passion in our voices or you know, emotion in our hearts or thoughts in our minds. It's demonstrated and lived out in the everyday routines of life. Sometimes even the mundane. So let's discover what extravagant worship might look like. The first point I want to say is just that sharing as worship. I'm not even sure that that's the best word or the word that really captures what I see happening in this scene. But but when I say sharing as worship, I mean to say that we worship God when we share life or, or do life together with other believers. Whenever we gather, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, around a brunch table, or even in a restaurant or in a home, there is something uniquely God-honoring in that act. This dinner that was prepared, this meal that was shared was in the honor of Jesus. And Jesus gathered with his closest friends, Lazarus, his disciples, and, and others as well, and Martha and Mary. This was a fellowship meal. They were just spending time together. And there is something about meeting in one another's homes and sharing our lives together. Because it meets a need. Because we were created for relationship. Remember when, when during creation that God kept looking at his creation as he created throughout the week and concluded, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And then all of a sudden he creates Adam and then suddenly it is not good for man to be alone. You can very easily, I think, look throughout the scriptures and, and understand a whole theology of relationships. And we only need to look at God, the Trinity, or as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all in relationship, and relationships are crucial. The early church, we read, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they did this within this context of community, of relationship. Acts 2 verse 44 we read, And all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. Meeting together and sharing. Two choices that we too need to make. And when we do, I believe we bring honor to Jesus by just being the church, doing what the church did and what the church is supposed to do. And when we meet in Jesus' name, and we share our homes, and we share our experiences, and we share our problems, and we share our struggles, we're doing exactly what we need to do and should do. And so can I just encourage you this morning, if you're not already in some small group, whether it's sort of an official part of TCC or not, that you should be, we have home groups where it's a great place that gives you time and opportunity to really get to know one another. We simply say that it's a place where everybody knows your name. It's kind of like Cheers or something, where you just have a place to hang out and visit and talk and get to know one another. And most importantly, do it for the sake of Jesus. And so that we learn and grow together. And in that kind of sharing, in that kind of fellowship, that is an act of worship. 
something that we don't program, but we encourage our triads, where we just encourage three men or three women to meet together. You just pick your own. You pick your own meeting time. But the point is that you get together to encourage one another in your walk with Jesus. But it's a form of worship. Because we were never meant to go through life on our own. And in the context of relationships, this is where we can share our joys and our heartaches. Sometimes we laugh, and other times we weep. In this event in the life of Jesus, we see friends sharing a meal and doing life together. They must have known the danger, and yet they met. And it brings honor to Jesus. So sharing is worship. But let's also look at growing as worship. Growing as worship. In this scene, we also see Mary where we have seen her before, at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, Jesus is a guest in the home of Martha. And while Martha is busy taking care of all the preparations, where is Mary? Remember the story, right? She's at the feet of Jesus, listening intently to what he had to say. And so there you find her, worshiping and learning from Jesus. Again, in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes to Bethany after Lazarus has now died, Mary runs out to meet him. And in verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so there she is again at the feet of Jesus, expressing her faith in Jesus and and, and in his power of of, of bringing life to to a situation. It seems that Mary knew that Jesus was about to die. And even at this point, this late, it seems like his disciples were still missing that point. But Mary, because of the time that she had spent with Jesus, spent at his feet, she learned and she grew in her understanding of who he was and what was about to happen to him. You see, this phrase kind of sitting at one's feet. It, it meant to learn from that person. Like a child might sit at the feet of a parent and learn from the parent, or a pupil learning from a rabbi. We learn about Jesus by simply spending time with him. There's just no substitute. When we study the Bible, we are, in a sense, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And when we learn, we grow. And when we grow, we worship. I I don't know all of your past and histories. I'm not going to do a survey or a test this morning. But those of you who grew up maybe going to church, and specifically Sunday school, do do you remember the children's song that you might sing? Read your Bible, pray every day. And do you remember the actions that went with that? Are there any... Do I hear an amen? Like, does anybody with me on this? Because it's, it's pretty well known, right? It's like, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 and you did the actions and all this thing, kind of like stacking bricks, and you're growing and all these things, right? All together now, right? Ready? No, just kidding. But in the simplicity of that children's song is a tremendous amount of truth. When we read our Bibles and we pray every day, When we spend time with Jesus, we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, 
And as we learn and grow, we honor him, we worship him. And if you want to put this into the context of a gathering for worship such as this, I would suggest to you that it is out of the growth and learning in private that it fuels our worship in public. Because then we can worship in spirit and in truth. We know what it is that we are singing about. We've experienced it. We've learned it. We know that it is true. And so we worship on the basis then of what we know, and it's just not emotion and sentimental feelings. But we worship, as the scripture says, in spirit and in truth. And simply put, if we want to worship Jesus by growing in our understanding of who he is, then we have to discipline ourselves to do the necessary work. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It's just not going to happen on its own. Donald Gray Barnhouse was an American Christian, preacher, pastor, theologian, radio pioneer, and writer. And he tells the story of a young boy who was riding with a well-known Bible teacher on a train en route to one of the Bible teacher's meetings. The teacher was sitting on the train reading his Bible. The boy, on the other hand, was reading the newspaper. As they traveled along, finally the boy looked over at his mentor and saw what he was doing. I wish I knew the Bible as you do, he remarked in a complimentary way. You'll never get to know it by reading the newspaper, the teacher answered kindly. The boy got the message, put the paper away, and began to read his own Bible. In time, he went on to become a widely known Bible teacher in his own right. Barnhouse was, in fact, that young boy. You see, it's not about becoming a great Bible teacher. That's not the point. But if we are to learn anything about Jesus, then the words about Jesus and of Jesus are essential, and we have to study them and grow. And as we grow, we worship. And I think it's something that we can learn from Mary. So maybe we have to put the newspaper away or log out of Facebook or shut down Twitter. Whatever it is that consumes our time. And listen, I am probably guiltier than everyone else in this room. Because it does. It just can be absorbing and time-consuming. But we need to spend time growing in our understanding of who God is, what He has done, and His love for us so that we can worship Him. Serving then as worship. When Mary took the expensive perfume and anointed Jesus' feet with it and then dried them with her hair, she was demonstrating her love and her gratitude to him. You see, love always motivates and fuels our worship. But this extravagant act of worship wasn't just to show her love for Jesus. There was also a practical purpose behind it. Mary was, in fact, preparing Jesus for burial. She performed this service for Jesus. And then there was a version, or her version, of the ritual of foot washing. It was customary to have a servant wash the feet of the guests. So here Mary, in this one act of service, is showing humility and devotion to Jesus by serving him. And John says in verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of this expensive perfume. No doubt, That line just underscores the extravagance of the gift, which we'll look at in a second. 
there was just so much of it that it just kind of permeated everything. But as I thought about this, I, I wonder if there isn't something else going on. And, and I realize that this is highly speculative, and whenever you speculate about things, you can kind of get yourselves in trouble. But I, I suspect that Mary didn't just stay at the feet of Jesus the whole time. I think that maybe after anointing uh, Jesus' feet, she got up and she helped serve the meal and pass out the food and take care of the guests. And since now, after having used her hair to wipe the, 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 the oil, the fragrant oil, the perfume on her feet, it was now in her hair. And so wherever she walked throughout the home, the aroma of the perfume went with her, spreading and filling the house with the fragrance. Kind of like a, like a walking air freshener. But isn't that really what service is? We see a need that someone has. Maybe we stoop down and we meet that need. And when we serve others, we are a blessing and an encouragement to them, and we bring refreshment to their lives. And it wasn't just Mary who served. It was Martha. She also loved Jesus. Now, she didn't anoint Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, but here in this account... Martha was again involved in preparing and serving the meal. She worked hard. She did what was needed, and it was important. Without Martha, there would have been no meal. So she is serving, and she's worshiping. And that's significant. And what's significant, excuse me, is that this time, as opposed to in Luke chapter 12, she's not complaining about it. Because if you remember in chapter chapter 10 of Luke's, uh, Luke's gospel, in that scene where Jesus and Martha's home, she finally gets frustrated because Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's busy left to doing all the work, and she goes to Jesus and says, how can you just let her sit there? Tell her to help me. It almost seems like maybe Martha discovered joy in serving. And isn't that really what Jesus wants? He doesn't want our heartless devotion, our going through the motions. He wants us to experience the joy of serving others. We have to be so careful to never, ever let serving become an obligation. When you feel you have to do something rather than you want to do something, then you better watch out. You're moving into dangerous territory. I am so thrilled when I think of the many people who serve at TCC every week. They come early, just, or, 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 or if you doubt me, just come early and, and observe or walk into the kitchen or see the guys setting up the tables and the chairs, listen to the worship team rehearse, see the children's ministry team arrive early so they can prepare and pray together. And there's joy. And when we do it for Jesus, it's worship. In Colossians 3.23, we read, Work hard and cheerfully at all that you do, just as though you're working for the Lord and not merely for your masters. Serving is worship. And lastly, giving as worship. From our passage this morning, this is probably the most obvious. Mary takes this huge and lavish amount of perfume, a, a fragrant oil. We read that it was made from the essence of nard and then pours it out on Jesus' feet and probably his head as well. In fact, in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, there's parallel accounts that give us a little bit more insight into this specific event. And, and there, Matthew and Mark both refer to her also anointing his head. 
Remember I said earlier, she was, he was in essence preparing his body for burial. This perfume was imported from India. It was rare, precious, and they said it was pure and it was expensive. How expensive? Are you ready for this? We heard him say in the, in the, in the, uh, the video this morning, 300 silver coins. Verse 5 tells us that perfume was worth a year's wages. Specifically, it was worth 300 denarii. And one denarii was equal to a laborer's full day, day's wage. So to put it in today's context, let's even just consider that minimum wage is what? Just over $10 an hour. So $80 a day times 300 days, $24,000 was the value of this perfume. Just let that settle in, right? It's almost unimaginable. She pours $24,000 worth of perfume simply to cherish and to honor Jesus. It's almost breathtaking. And it raises so many questions, doesn't it? And, and I don't have time to answer all those questions because like one immediately came to mind, how wealthy do you have to be to own a bottle of perfume that's worth $24,000 at a minimum? But what made this act so extravagant, so lavish, so over the top? Judas's perspective, and really from everyone else in the room, again, Mark's gospel sheds light on that, that all the others were muttering about themselves the same thing that Judas said out loud. It was wasteful. And really, Judas wasn't uh, just upset that he didn't, have his cha- he didn't have a chance to get his kind of greedy fingers into that loot, <clears throat> right? Because what he was saying is, <clears throat> I'm the treasurer, I take care of the money, Let's sell it. I'll put it in my money bag, and eventually that money will line my pockets. But it's almost as if Mary just asked herself, what can I do to show that I love him and that I understand what he is doing for us? And then she thought of her most precious possession, her ointment. I'll give him that, all of it. That's what we should ask when we're giving. What can I do to show that I love him and what I understand what he's doing for us? I mean, don't we want to worship Jesus the way Mary and Martha did? Maybe even to the point of extravagance? Wouldn't we rather be like Mary than Judas? I mean, Judas criticizes Mary because she was so extravagant. I mean, that's pretty rich coming from him, don't you think? He, who out of his greed, eventually sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Mary's offering was worth probably at least two and a half times that. Mary gave her most valued possession. Our most valued possession will be different. Very different. But the question is, whatever it is, Could we use it in some way to serve and to honor Jesus? Maybe our children. I mean, if our child wanted to serve Jesus in a distant and maybe even scary place, could we let them go? 
Or would we be willing ourselves to leave everything that we have, the comforts of home, the comforts of living here, to go ourselves if that's where God was leading us? Or would we use our abundance then to send others? Oh, we might object saying, but, but I would be throwing all that I've worked for away. And maybe in a sense you would be. At least that's how the world would see it. But we would be investing in heavenly treasure. When we give of ourselves in worship to God, we give our lives. And instead of hoarding and holding tightly to all that we have, we simply become a blessing to others. We share our stuff. And in our giving, God is honored and worshipped. Now, I suspect that there must have been a certain I-don't-care-what-others-think attitude that Mary had in her devotion and worship. She was acting with total abandon. Her actions were bold and intimate and shocked the other guests. There were so many custom violations in that one act. A, A woman never would have shown her hair in public. She would have never let it down the way Mary did. So on top of the expensive perfume pouring it on her feet, the wiping of the the feet with her hair, the the fact that she stepped out of serving to do that role that others just thought was wasteful and, and, and just so over the top. But it didn't matter to her. Because for her, it was all about, I need to demonstrate my love and my honor to Jesus. And I think her extravagant act of worship reminds us that worship ultimately isn't getting something from Jesus. It is about offering something to him. And when we share our lives with others, we worship Jesus. When we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, we worship him. And when we serve others in Jesus' name, we worship him. And when we give, we worship him. Let's pray together. Father, what a great and dramatic scene that we've looked at again this morning. You know, when we try to put it in our context and we think of the value of that gift, we too might be tempted to say, oh, she should have sold it. She could have done so much with it. And it wasn't about taking something from someone else to give it to Jesus. Jesus was clear that we should still give and share and what we have with the poor that are always around us. They will always be. Your word commands us to look after the poor and after the orphans and widows. Lord, we want to be people who are actively engaged in our, in our culture and serving to meet those needs. But I pray, Lord, this morning that just from this extravagant act of worship, we would see that worship really is a way of life, a way that we live out every day in honor to you. And when we sing songs, we express what we know to be true, your love for us, your great mercy, your holiness. And we want to do that, Lord, even this morning with passion that could look very different from person to person so it's not even the same in that way but it's it's the truth of what's in our hearts I pray Lord that this wouldn't be done out of routine or 
something that we do every Sunday, but that we sing songs to bring honor and glory to you. And Lord, that you would refresh us and encourage us so that as we hit the streets tomorrow, we might think of ways of how we too can share our lives, how we might grow in our understanding of who you are, how we might serve others in your name, and that we would give to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray.